Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. Good to be with you. Um, for those who are regular at New Hope, uh, just a reminder for you that in two weeks, uh, we're celebrating the first year of this church on uh, April 6th, and we're going to have a potluck. And if you're uh, new to the church or old to the church, we'd love to have you here. We'll make sure you have plenty of food and try and find a place for everybody to sit that Sunday. That'll be a big day. Um, I'd like to invite you to pray with me now before we jump into God's Word. Father, we, we readily admit that words fail us in our ability to express thanks and recognition for what you did. Uh, the English language, let alone, is incapable of expressing the words that reflect what our hearts feel. So we do the best we can. And many times we're able to accomplish that through song. So thank you for the gift of music. Because our hearts are full of joy. But now, Father, we take on the task of trying to decipher and understand things that have been hidden and seen as foolishness by the world, yet through the power of your Spirit, you've seen fit to reveal it to the hearts of men and women and children who call themselves your own. So as we look into your text this morning, the things that you would written down as a record for us to remind us, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you'd give us ears to hear. Open our hearts, Father. Make us receptive to the things that you want us to learn. We ask this in the power and the name of our risen King, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys could take an example from that. In the 1970s, I'll date myself when I was in college, and uh, having a rather good time with my friends in the dorm to inaugurate spring one year, we thought we would have a battle in our dorm amongst the guys in the dorm um, using water. And the water fight that ensued was of such proportion that I dare not begin to try and repeat to you what we actually did, short of getting out the fire hoses in the side of the hall. Uh, we filled large buckets in water containers and propped them over doors. And students that are here, please don't take this as an example. <laughs> um, I was really caught up in the water battle. And I had large buckets of water, and I was just dousing people in and throwing it all over the room. It was so wet in my dorm, especially in my room, that water was dripping off the ceiling because we had just tossed it all over the place. And faintly in my ear, I could hear someone say, He's coming. And I thought, who's coming? No big deal. The RA's gone, so I'm not worried about that. So I got another bucket of water, and I threw it, and I filled up another bucket of water, and there's guys throwing water at me, and I am dripping wet. I look like a rat going swimming in a lake. And I filled up my last bucket of water, and the door was beginning to open, and I thought it was one of my friends coming through. And so, whew, and there was the dean of men. Now, in my Bible college, <laughs> not only were you not to partake in that kind of behavior, you were only supposed to listen to certain approved music, and Boston was not one of them. <laughs> and we had Boston cranking, and the windows were open, 
And we're letting the heat out, and the dean of men is standing there drenched, and it's my fault. Now, I heard someone say, he's coming, but I didn't pay attention to it. The one who would set things right and put things back in order was now dealing with me to give me demerits and give me detention, of which I faithfully serve, you'll want to know. We love in our society the thought of someone coming in and restoring order, bringing peace, establishing purpose. You see it all the way through pop culture. Superman swoops in and grabs Lois Lane at the last moment. Luke Skywalker takes the Millennium Falcon and courses through the universe, destroying evil. Captain Kirk rides atop the starship Enterprise, boldly going. In the Matrix, Morpheus is looking for the promised one, the chosen one. Pop culture is full of it. Lately, I've heard some people say that there's a certain political candidate that they call the promised one, the chosen one, believing that there's somebody who's going to fix this mess. We crave as a people to know that there's some solution. Something's out of whack. If our recent stock reports are any indicator, something's going wrong. Things are not as they should be. Throughout the Old Testament, there was an expectation of a promised one. One who would restore order, crush opposition, and restore justice. Revealing the very word of God to the people. So the ancient people of the Old Testament were constantly looking forward in time for the promised one who would restore order. You read it at Christmas time. Perhaps this one you're familiar with, this verse from Micah, written 400 years before the arrival of Christ. Micah 5.2 But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Micah wrote that 400 years before Jesus arrived, born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, fulfilling scripture, the promised one. Yet they missed it. They didn't understand now, somewhere in the ancient past, before recorded time, Lucifer rebelled against God, and a clock started ticking. And from that moment forward in time, God said, I will restore order. I will bring purpose back. Satan profaned the heavenly sanctuary of God. That's what we read in Ezekiel. He, along with a third of the angels of heaven, rebelled against God. And they destroyed order. Scripture says they profaned the sanctuaries of heaven and they brought disorder into the universe. Something had to happen to restore order. Something had to bring about a purpose to once again set things right. Men and women have been looking for it for centuries. Things are not as they should be. The very existence of the field of philosophy that we study in colleges exists because people are on a quest to understand truth. They want to understand what is truth. 
Do you know there's a guy 2,000 years ago who was a Roman ruler that actually asked that of Jesus as he was getting ready to kill him? Read this verse along with me. It's from John 18. Pilate's talking to Jesus in the midst of the, the mansion and he's about ready to pass a death sentence on him and he asks this question. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Aletheia. It's the Greek word for it. We've been studying the book of Genesis over the last nine weeks, working through chapter 1 and chapter 2 here at the church. Understanding truth. Aletheia. Fact. Reality. Jesus said, I am the Aletheia. And Pilate, not seeming to care, not wanting to hear the answer, went about his governmental business and pronounced judgment on Christ. When Pilate asked that question, he was asking the right source. He was asking the one who could say, I am the truth. Now, if you're going to be coming here to New Hope on a regular basis, you might as well know. We spend a lot of time here exploring the truth. We dig into God's Word. Not new truth, but the truth. The one who said, I am the truth in John 14, 6. And here's why. I need to remind all of us of this, especially myself. Look at 2 Timothy 4 on the screen. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth the aletheia, and will turn aside to myths. Now here is truth. That he lived is indisputable. The record that he breathed and walked on this planet is just as true as George Washington walking and breathing on this planet a couple hundred years ago. It's just that it happened further back in time. No one disputes the validity that Jesus walked on the planet Earth because of the preponderance of evidence. Have you ever stopped to think, for instance, that there's two and a half billion people that believe what you believe, that Jesus is the Christ? On this planet, of the six billion people, two and a half billion people believe that. Now, either we believe the biggest lie ever perpetuated upon man, or he really walked the planet. Now, that doesn't mean that the other two people for the four billion people from two to six billion don't believe in Jesus they just haven't followed him but there's two billion people who say yeah I believe that so that he lived is not in question how he lived is also not a matter of question there's a, a magnitude of materials written about his life we have all kinds of documents from the basis of his example have you ever stopped to think that before Jesus walked on this earth hospitals for the poor and needy didn't exist. Women were treated like furniture, let alone children. Because of Jesus' example, he elevated women and children. He elevated the poor and the needy. He made it more than just a mandate. He said, this will be your way of life. And so out of that, we began educating and middle class arose. Jesus, like no other leader that ever walked the face of the earth, 
change the course of humanity. I recommend a book to you if you haven't, um, uh, if you have had some time to read, one that's just come out recently, and it's called um, 33 A.D. And this is a book based around the time when Jesus walked on the earth. All the things that were taking place on the planet. A fascinating read. Read what John had to say about what Jesus did that was so magnificent. And there are also many other things which Jesus, which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John 21. That's a whole lot. Jesus did more than we know about. So, that he lived, how he lived, but why he lived. That steps into the realm of the theological. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning. What we call the consummation of the ages. We looked at this briefly back just before Christmas here. And I want to kind of tie it together as we look at the sacrificial system and you understand why Jesus lived. But God sent forth His Son. You might be familiar with that verse at Christmas time. If you go to church at Christmas, you've heard that verse before. But God sent forth His Son. Here's where it actually comes from. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. The consummation of the ages. 1 Corinthians 10.11 now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Consummation of the ages. Hebrews 9.26 Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The hinge pin of human history the turning point of everything that we know hinges on Jesus' arrival on earth. What I like to call funnel point theology. Everything dumping down into one particular moment. And we pick it up at the climax of the moment when we look at the scene of the cross. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. A hardened centurion, a Roman soldier, standing at the foot of the cross and looking up said, because of the way he took his last breath, this has got to be God's son. This truly is the son of God. The centurion got it. He understood just because of the way Jesus gave up his life. Now, what had been exuberant joy for his followers only days before became despair at that moment because they missed it. They missed what we're calling the consummation of the ages. They didn't understand what was going on. The women were caught up in mourning and sorrow. The men were running and hiding. They missed it. They didn't understand the aletheia, the truth. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? I have that question asked of me more than any other question when I speak with someone who doesn't attend church or someone who doesn't know a lot about church and church life. 
Why did Jesus have to die? That's the question that these followers would have asked. Why did he have to die? To answer that question, it's necessary for us to take a step back in time and allow God's plan to unfold and to see an overview of the Old Testament. So that's what I want to invite you to do. That'll help you to understand why Jesus had to die, which makes sense in why God resurrected him. With the fall of man involving the willful disobedience of God's commands, the rebellion against God came the inevitable, death. God said, if you disobey me, you will die. You've read that in Genesis. We just studied that two weeks ago here. If you disobey me, you will die. So inevitably, God said, not only will I carry out my command, but I'm also going to fix it in such a way that you can come back. Brothers and sisters in this room, you and I do not comprehend how holy God is. We don't understand it. But God said, I am so holy, I will not tolerate sin. It will not be in my existence. I am not going to allow it. And so therefore, I'm going to give you a system by which you can be cleansed from sin. And he started out in the ancient days with what we call the tabernacle, a place where men could come and women and children and offer sacrifices on behalf of their family for the sins that they had committed. You might be familiar with this image of a tabernacle. Today we use the word kind of loosely and it's attached to some churches, but the tabernacle was actually a traveling tent and it was ornately made. And God said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to build this tabernacle and I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to have a contract with you that if you will come and do what I asked you to do, if you will offer sacrifices in the way that I tell you to do it, I'll have a contract with you that I will forgive your sin. I will cover over it. Now, within this tabernacle, you might be familiar with the fact that only the priest could go inside it. When the tabernacle was out in the desert, people like us, commoners, we could not go inside the tabernacle. The priest had to do it for them. So they stayed outside. And a priest would go inside and he would carry out what we call in the Old Testament priestly duties. And inside there was the, what we call today the menorah, the candlestick that had to be lit. And there was a table of showbread. And it had 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And next to each loaf was a, a row of incense and frankincense, creating beautiful aromas in the room. And there was an altar of incense. And the priest had to go in there on a regular basis and maintain the inner chamber. Not the Holy of Holies, but this is called the Holy Place. And then, once a year, and only once a year, the high priest, the priest that was above all the other priests, could enter into the place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where you find the Ark of the Covenant. The inner chamber, the inside room. Now this is a place that was absolutely critical that the high priest treated with great reverence. This was a dangerous place. As a matter of fact, when the high priest went into this room that was separated from the people by a very, very thick curtain and veil, and there was no light inside there, only the light of God's presence shone off the gold walls that were inside. 
when the high priest went inside, he had to take his sandals off, kick them off to the side, bow his head, and walk with his hands down, not looking around, lest he would see God. Now, another interesting detail is that God required them to put bells on the side of the priest. So when the other priest, the lower order of priests, heard the high priest in there and they heard the bells ringing, they knew that he was still alive. They thought, okay, he hasn't done anything wrong yet. But if the bells stopped ringing, they had a rope attached to him so they could pull the high priest back out because he must have done something to profane God's tabernacle. He must have accidentally touched the ark. This is the thing that you learn about when you watch the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in which they're trying to find this thing. Now somewhere in ancient history, it did disappear. It's gone. We don't know where it's at. We don't know if it still exists. But God said, you're going to do this in such a way that you're going to understand how holy I am. So on this one day, what we call Yom Kippur, you hear about it in the news. This year it's going to be in September for the Jewish people. This one day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take an offering for the sins of all the people, the whole nation, and he would go in there with his head down and with a bowl of blood from an animal that would take away their sins. He would walk in and with a branch and hyssop on the end of it, which is like a cotton cloth, he would dip it in the blood and he would shake it all over on the altar, sprinkling the altar with the blood of the slain animal. Now in the very middle of the ark, on the top where the cherubim are at, the angels are carved, is what is called the mercy seat or the propitiation seat. It's the place where God's wrath was taken away. So we call it a place of propitiation, the center of the ark. Now you might want interestingly to know that when the tabernacle was taken apart, Solomon's temple was built to replace it. And then when the people were disobeying God and God hauled them off into captivity into Babylon, the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, which was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. And then after they were released from Babylon and they came all the way back to Israel again, they built another temple. King Herod did that for them. It's called Herod's temple or the second temple. Now when Jesus was here on the earth, he said, because you have rejected me, this temple will be destroyed. It was a magnificent temple. It took up 35 acres. Thousands of people could gather in its courtyards. And that's where Jesus taught people when he sat in the courtyards of the temple. But sure enough, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Second temple gone. Today, as you sit here, there's a group of people working in Israel trying to organize a way in which they can build the third temple because they believe that's the way back to God. If we could just have the Holy of Holies again, we could get back to God. This word propitiation, I want you to understand it very clearly. So let's bring up the definition. It's an atoning victim, the animal on which they placed the sins of the people before they slew it, known as an atoning victim. Especially, helisterion refers to the center of the ark, the propitiation. 
Now with that in mind, read this verse, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. One more time, 1 John 2.2. And He Himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our propitiation. The ark was no longer needed. Jesus became the mercy seat. And He not only just covers sins, He takes them away. That's what couldn't happen for these people prior to that time. They could not have their sins taken away. Jesus takes away the sins of the world. Now, with everything I've just told you in mind, what I want to do is take you into Hebrews chapter 9. It's a very complex chapter, and I wanted you to have that background so in the next few minutes as we close, you'll understand what's going on here in these verses. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Hebrews chapter 9. And if you don't, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. As a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible and you'd like to take one of those, feel free to do that. We have others to replace them. Hebrews chapter 9, and it'll be up on the screen as well, verse 11. Now think of all the things I just told you about the sacrificial system and the high priest coming in. And this book of Hebrews now was written long after Christ died, looking back on why he did what he did by one of the ancient writers. Hebrews 9.11 When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, speaking of heaven, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now here's the reason why Jesus died. Verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Not exactly what you're going to read for nighttime reading, is it? It's complicated. But when you understand the sacrificial system and you see that word covenant prop up, and you're a person who's understood that God at one time covenanted with his people to say, I will take away your sins through the sacrifice of these animals, now is saying, 
I'm going to covenant with you, everyone, that if you trust in Jesus' blood, he will not only cover over your sins, but cast them away, completely remove them. Now, what's interesting in this is a legal language is used. It's a binding word. There's attorneys in this room. They probably are familiar with this word from college days. Diathake. And it's speaking of the word covenant. It means a contract. God is making a contract with us. He's saying, I'm coveting with you. And this is not the result of a negotiation in which you get to sit down in the room and arbitrate with your attorney and God and say, let's have some negotiations. God is saying, you don't get any say in this. I'm establishing the covenant. You just have to live up to your end of the deal, which is you're going to follow the commands I've given you. This kind of diatheke that's referred to here, it's only in force in the ancient world when there was a blood sacrifice. There had to be blood to put it into effect. That's why it's saying there had to be the death of the one who made the covenant. Now, move into verse 19 with me. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, he's referring back to the Old Covenant, Old Testament times, Moses is standing at the base of the mountain, and he's telling everyone that they've got to live up to these things that God's calling them to do. And Moses is speaking the words of the commandment. And it says, From when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying this, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So get this picture in your mind. Moses has this bowl of blood, animal blood. And it sounds really gross, doesn't it? But there was a cost for the sins. And he took this wool-like substance, like a hyssop, dipped it in, and he shook it on the people. And he shook it on the scriptures. And he's saying, with this blood, I've established a covenant. And you've heard it. That's an interesting picture to keep in your mind when he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I want you to get this very clearly in your mind. The things that Moses sprinkled that it's talking about are copies of the things in heaven. The place that Satan profaned, the place where Satan rebelled, God is saying, Moses, you covered all these earthly tabernacles with blood. Let's talk more now about how Jesus is going to cover everything with his blood. Okay, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, meaning the things here on earth, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. This one, I have to owe credit to Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum because for all the years I've studied, I didn't really get it in my head until the last three months. Jesus didn't just set things right here for us on earth, but he entered the heavenly realm. If you read that in the context of what it's saying, it's saying that Jesus' blood not just covered our sins, but it set in order the things that had been profaned in heaven. Don't ask me how the things in heaven could be profaned. I don't understand it. But that's clearly what it's saying here. Verse 26, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. If we can get in our heads this consummation of the ages concept that everything hinged on that moment in time, understand this, it ushered in the final state of affairs. Everything hinged on this moment. Why? Because God decisively altered your destiny at that moment. He gave you a way out because He's so holy, He can't tolerate sin. But He's saying, I'm giving you a way out. Because why? It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It is appointed that we will die, and after this comes judgment. Like most of you, I've been to funerals, and I've seen dead bodies. It's not hard for me to picture Jesus laying in the tomb, cold, lifeless body, sitting on a shelf, freshly hewn grave. It's quiet. There's no life there. But in one moment, the Ruach Elohim, God breathed life back into that body. And the Son of God, the King of Kings, rose again. God said, I am bringing this life back. This is the King of Kings. The chest heaved. The eyes opened. And the body of the King of Kings thundered on earth. So much so that the very foundations of the earth shook. The stone was rolled away. And the King of Kings said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through this mercy seat, through this perpetuation. I am the new altar. 
I am the one by which you will come to Christ. Why? So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await Him. Do you eagerly await Him? See, He's not going to refer to sin when He comes back the second time. That's been dealt with. He puts sin away. He's coming back the second time for salvation. Can I send you out of here with one verse that's a reminder for you? A peaceful thought. It comes from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, think of Moses doing this, okay? Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed, think of baptism, with a pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. God said in his scriptures in the book of John that at the moment Jesus cried out and said this, it is finished. At that moment, the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies was ripped in half. Physically, a 12-inch curtain woven in Babylon with the fibers joined together because of the thunder of what just happened on Mount Golgotha. When Jesus said, It is finished! The earth shook. And the curtain separating the Holy of Holies ripped. Now, no doubt, the high priest and the priest didn't know what to do. No one had ever looked in to the Holy of Holies, the very sanctuary of God. And that's why the writer in Hebrews says, we have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You don't need a high priest. You have a high priest in Jesus. He has done it all for you. No more sacrificial system. You don't have to show up year after year with a lamb and offer it on the behalf of your family sins because it didn't work anyways you have Jesus one time for all for every one of us would you bow with me father this story is more magnificent than we can possibly understand or relay but we believe that by the work of your spirit you make it alive and real to us your word is indeed a two-edged sword. It is so sharp, it discerns right to the joints and marrow. Father, I know there's individuals in this room today who need to understand more of this story. Cause their heart to be tender, Father. Give them the boldness to approach myself or someone else in leadership. These are serious moments because you said death is more serious than death because there's a judgment coming. 
Father, we don't intend to scare anyone. You know that. But we intend to deal with the reality of the fact that we stand as sinners in need of a Savior. And you gave us that through the mighty work of Jesus. Praise you for that, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we sing to you now. Amen.